We're going to have a look. The, the title of the message is it's on the screen this morning is a glorious mystery. We're continuing through Ephesians and uh, we're at chapter number three now and we're going to see a glorious mystery. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of the word mystery, but generally it's something that's um, unknown or unexplained. You know, the, the thrillers with the, the mystery, murder mysteries, uh, mysteries like why when DFS's sale is going to come to an end. Mysteries like Domino's, why you would ever pay full price for Domino's. I don't know if you've gone on Domino's full price. You, you, you need a Swiss bank account to pay that. But they always give you vouchers. Really, you get to the real price. Um, Scooby-Doo, you can't think of the word mystery without thinking of Scooby-Doo if you're old enough, right? The mystery machine and uh, Scooby-Doo and all that sort of stuff. Um, my house, there's a few mysteries in my house. Don't I tell you some of them? I'll tell you, I'll tell you two mysteries in my house, unexplained, yet to be explained. Number one, Claire's not here, so I can say this, uh, is that I usually put my socks into the laundry bin in a pair. I'm good like that. I actually fold them together and put them in so they're in a pair. Something happens from the laundry basket to the washing machine back to the drawer, where one sock comes back and one sock disappears, never to be seen again. That's a mystery. Here's another mystery in my house. Where do all the teaspoons go? Who steals teaspoons? I literally buy them and they disappear, and then I go buy more and they disappear. Now, there's not that many tea drinkers in the house. And Caden's lactose intolerant, so he doesn't eat yogurts that much. What's going on? It's a mystery. And there are mysteries in Scripture. There are mysteries in the Bible. But a mystery in the Bible is not the same as a mystery that we think of when we think of the word mystery in today's context in our culture. The mystery of the teaspoon or the mystery of the socks. It's not the same thing. Mystery in Scripture refers to the understanding of formerly hidden knowledge that was revealed by God to his people. Biblically, we see this concept of progressive revelation. And we're going to talk about this this morning as we go through it. So we see aspects of God's mysterious working in the world now are, are understood and comprehensible to the people of God as God has revealed it to them. So, for example... Talk about the mystery of the rapture. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51 says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. What's Paul talking about? He's talking about hidden truth. This mystery that now God has revealed, that was hidden before. Paul talks about the mystery of Israel's blindness in Romans 11, verse 25, where he says, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. He talks about this mystery, this thing that was hidden, that is now revealed by God. Paul kind of summarizes this and caps it off in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 when he talks about the mystery of godliness and he says without controversy great is the mystery of godliness God was manifest in the flesh justified in the spirit seen of angels preached unto the Gentiles believed in the world received up into glory the word in the Greek for mystery is mysteron 
it, it, it has a sense of a divine uh, secret or concept that's being revealed. So the concept of mystery in the scripture is intimately connected with God's revelation. It has to be God that reveals this. So the biblical idea is different from the kind of English concept that we have about mystery, which involves something hidden or unknown. But mystery in the Bible is something that God reveals or is being revealed by God, by God to a person or to a group of people who then take the mystery on to others. This is progressive revelation. This is dispensationalism, really. Where God deals with a person, Abraham, and he moves from a person to a people in Israel. And then he goes to the person in Christ and the new revelation comes and then he moves to a people, the church. So this morning, that's what we're going to have a look at. We're going to have a look at this glorious mystery. If you look in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 3, where it says, How by, that by revelation, that Greek apocalypto revealing, he made known unto me the mystery as I wrote before in a few words. So the question is, what is the mystery that Paul is going to reveal here in chapter number 3 of Ephesians? The great mystery that he's going to reveal is the mystery of the church age or the church. Something that was hidden in the Old Testament that is now revealed. Something that the Old Testament prophets couldn't see. Let me show you this. I'm sure I've showed you this before. You may be able to see this, you may not, but I'll, I'll go through that a little bit. It's called the peaks of prophecy. What do we mean by this? Well, here is the Old Testament prophet. And from his view, as he looks across, he sees the tops of the mountain. He sees the birth of Jesus, Old Testament, it's in there. He sees the suffering of the Messiah, it's in there in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53. He sees the Antichrist, Daniel 7. He sees all these events, the kingdom, the return of the Lord, the new heavens, the new earth. They're all seen by the Old Testament prophets and declared. But what's not seen is what's in the valley. Because all they can see is the top. But from our perspective, as we stand now and we look with the complete revelation of God, what I mean by that, I mean that God progressively revealed things to men from the beginning all the way through. What God revealed to Adam and Eve is not the same as what he's revealed to us now. Because Adam and Eve only needed what they needed. They didn't need to know all this stuff. They needed simple truth from God. And as you go through the ages, you'll see God reveals more and he reveals more. And you get to the church age when he has revealed all. Everything. It's done. This book, let me, let me, let me clarify this. This book is the complete revelation of God. We have everything in this. So when we have everything, we can look and we can see it all. We can step back and we can see the big picture. We can look at all these events and we can see things that the Old Testament prophets could not see and did not see. The church. Hidden. They couldn't see it. Why? Because they could not see that the people would reject the Messiah when he put foot on the earth. What they saw was that the people accepted the Messiah when he put foot on earth and went into the kingdom that was promised to them 
through the promises in Abraham, the land, the seed, and the blessing, the promises given to David that the seed of David would rule forever on a throne. That Isaiah's prophecies about this time where the lion would lie with the, the lamb would lie with the wolf. How it would be peace. How this promised one would rule with a rod of iron. These are all prophecies foretold, and that's what they seen. They didn't see the rejection. And the rejection by Israel, God then moves into a different program, a different dispensation, changing how he works. He moves from Israel to the church, which is a mystery. Now, the job of the church was to provoke the Jews to jealousy. And ultimately, they will come back. That's the mystery of the blindness of Israel. They will come back. They will be restored. And when Messiah steps foot on earth again, puts his foot on earth again, they will accept him. And we're back into the the pigs flowing into the kingdom. But the church is a mystery. It's a glorious uh, mystery. So we want to have a look at that mystery this morning. We want to get into uh, chapter 3 of Ephesians. And we want to see what's going on there. And the first thing that we're going to see is how Paul unpacks to us the revelation of the mystery. And we'll read through Ephesians as we go and we work through all this. Look at verse number 1 where we deal with the telling of the mystery. Verse number one of Ephesians chapter three. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given to me, to you word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby ye read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. So here Paul talks about this revelation of the mystery. And he says straight away that the telling of the mystery was by Christ to him. Paul has been given this dispensation of the grace of God. That word dispensation in the Greek is economia. It literally means, comes from the verb to manage, to regulate, to administer and plan. It's a compound word that means to literally divide, apportion and minister the affairs of an inhabited house. Reynolds Charles in his book, uh, There Really Is a Difference, which is a useful, useful book in understanding dispensational theology, says it, dispensational theology is a system of theology which attempts to develop the Bible's philosophy of history on the basis of govern, God's sovereign rule. It represents the whole of Scripture being covered by seven, several dispensations of God's rule. What do I mean by that? How God is dealing with the people. Not a different means of salvation, but a different means of administration. Because God is progressively revealing himself. The concept is similar. If you have a baby in the house, for those of you who have little babies, they don't have many rules or responsibilities, right? You don't reveal to them all the things that you know and you are and they minister in the house. You get to, when you have kids that are my age, they have different rules. It's a different administration. Now they're responsible for doing the dishes, doing the garden. They want money from dad they got to work, right? Well, you don't say that to a young baby, do you? When you get 18 and things change, different administration, you're working to a different set of rules. That's what God's doing progressively. From Adam to Abraham to Israel to us. We're operating differently to Israel of the Old Testament, are we not? 
I tell you how I know we're not, we are, because we're here on a Sunday. <laughs> All the rules and regulations and things that were given to Israel as God revealed them, it's different for us. Now the moral laws carry, carry over, but the ceremonial stuff, no. The dietary laws, no. So we've got this revelation of the mystery, and it's given to Paul, specifically to Paul, to be the one that is, is going to go out and tell this mystery. But he's told of Christ. And Paul writes about this. Turn to Galatians chapter number 1. A little bit further back. Galatians chapter number 1. And look at what Paul says in verse number 18. Well, let's read from verse 17, actually. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia. Actually, let's pick up verse number 11. Let's go back a bit, get some context. Verse number 11, Galatians 1. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man, for I neither received it of man, neither I was taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my conversation in times past, the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Neither I went up to Jerusalem to them that were the apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. Turn with me to Acts chapter number 9. Acts chapter number 9. Caden, can you turn the main volume down a little bit, please? Acts chapter number 9. Now Paul, he receives the gospel. It's Damascus Road moment. He's an encounter with Christ that changes him. You get down to verse number 22 in Acts 9. It says, But Saul increased more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. So here he is, Paul, he gets saved. Now he's an expert in the law. He's an expert in Judaism. What he is not an expert in is the gospel of grace. What does that mean? The church age message. Not a different message of salvation, but what God is saying now. Because up until that point, the message is from Christ's lips, from the apostles' lips, is repent, for the kingdom is at hand. What's that? It's that peak. The kingdom is at hand. They can see that. This church age is a mystery. Now Paul is able to preach Christ from the Old Testament. But then something happens between verse 22 and 23. It says, Saul increased in strength. Verse 23. After that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. But their laying away it was known of Saul. And it gets on. Verse 26, and when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples. So between verse 25 and 26, there's a gap 
of approximately three years that Paul talks about in Galatians, where he went away to Arabia. Now, Arabia, not like modern day where we think it is. We think Saudi Arabia. It's not like that. Mostly this is Jordan and, and, and down. The capital of that area at that time is Petria, Petra. Personally, I believe that's where he went. This place of isolation where he could go away and some believe he reflected and thought about things. But I personally believe that he's taught by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it says in Galatians. He didn't receive this by man, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ, he's taught this mystery that God reveals to him that hasn't been revealed to others in the way that God reveals it to Paul. Paul then goes on to become the apostle to the Gentiles. And you get this break in Acts where there's a transition period where this offer of the kingdom to Israel is finally done and then it moves fully into the Gentiles and Paul leads that charge. He's the man that is uniquely qualified to teach that truth. Why? Because he's been taught by Christ. Different preaching that he was preaching in the synagogues. And it's Paul that we go to where we get all most of our church age doctrine. Why? Because he's been taught uniquely by Christ. Progressive revelation. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter number 3. Verse 5. I want us to see the Teller of the mystery, verse 5. Not, so Paul is told by Christ, but look at verse 5. It says, Which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as is now revealed unto his holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. So Paul, when he's writing Ephesians, you know, we're fully in the church age now, you understand that, as he writes this epistle. Now the apostles and the prophets know this truth. And it's revealed to them by the Spirit. Why is it revealed to them by the Spirit alone and not the Word? Paul has had the unique teaching from Christ. But now the apostles and the prophets, it's revealed to them through the Spirit. Why does it say through the Spirit and not through the Word? Because the New Testament wasn't written. The New Testament wasn't written. The apostles and the prophets then couldn't go like this and say, I have the complete revelation of God. So it's revealed to them through the Spirit, taught down from Paul, through Christ to Paul, Paul disseminates it, and then the Spirit teaches it to the heart of men. And that's an essential application today. You cannot, cannot, cannot understand the truth of God without the Spirit. End of. And that means you have to work at the Spirit's pace. And not your own pace. And you have to respond to the light that God gives you, and then he gives you more. If you don't respond to that light, and you try and get ahead of yourself and take on more than you can tackle, it'll destroy you. You not understand it. Three years, Paul, spent meditating, reflecting, comprehending what was being told to him about this amazing mystery. The Spirit has to have the, the work. Thankfully now, we have the dual application of the Spirit and the Word. We don't have to go looking for Paul because we have the Word. It's here, but we need the Spirit. That's why an unsaved person would come along and say, I've read the Bible 
I know all about it. Read it from cover to cover. You may have read it, but you haven't understood it. You can't. You can't. You can understand your need to be saved. That's it. The things of God, the deeper things of God, you need the Spirit of God. End up. What's the truth of the mystery? Verse number 6 of Ephesians 3. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, which I was made a minister according to the gift of grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. And so here's what Paul's saying about this ministry. It's revealed to me by Christ. It's revealed to others through the Spirit. And the truth of this is this great truth that we looked at, this glorious application of the blood we looked at last time, that God in his sovereignty and his amazing power has brought together two in one, Jew and Gentile in the church of God. And for the Gentiles especially, that is a glorious mystery. Because Paul has told us in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11 that we were uh, Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, See, without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The truth of this mystery is that we have been grafted in and given great promises that we're no longer without God. So here Paul lays out the revelation of this mystery, the unveiling of the church, the glorious gospel, the church aids. There's no manual for it. It has to be the Spirit of God. But now we fast forward to today and we have it all. God has revealed it all and he has preserved it. Why? Because he's God. One of the greatest evidences for the truth of God. Two great evidences. The Hebrews and the Hebrew Bible. Both the enemy has tried to extinguish from time immemorial. But it stands, stands, it stands. We've had it revealed to us. Paul had it revealed. Secondly then, what about the communication of the mystery? Let's look at verse number 8. We see that this mystery is to be advocated on earth. Paul says, Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hidden God, who created all things by Christ Jesus. This mystery is given, but remember that, you know, there was many cults and isms and schisms that are appearing, you know, um, at that time in the early church. We're looking at it through Peter, the Gnosticism, the special knowledge reserved for some. Israel had been given the oracles of God. They were to be a light unto the world, a light unto the Gentiles. And what had they done? kept it for themselves. And here Paul says this glorious mystery is to be communicated, is to be advocated on earth. And God has told me that I am to preach this message to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. What is that? The gospel of grace. Preach it to the Gentiles to make all men see what is the fellowship of this mystery. What is the fellowship of that mystery? Of the mystery? It's a fellowship with God and it's a fellowship of Jew and Gentile in the body of Christ. God has 
chose Paul to do this, to be the messenger of the gospel of grace. Now, I want you to think about Paul. Why did God choose Paul? Because that's God's sovereign choice. But it was Paul. A couple of reasons people put forward. Number one, he was an expert in the law. He knew Judaism. And if you know Judaism, you absolutely easily can go into the truth of the gospel of grace. He was fervent in his Judaism. I mean, he was committed. Paul seems like the man that whatever he did, he, he did it. That his yes was yes and his no was no. From a saying, his character was good. But why else did God choose him? Turn to Acts chapter number 9 again. Acts 9. Acts chapter number 9 and verse number 1. says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest. Breathing out threatenings and slaughter. What does that mean? It means he lived for the destruction of the early church. That It was his all-encompassing being, his very breath. He was taken over it. And he did terrible things to the early church. Terrible things. Threatenings and slaughter. I don't know how many martyrs he made. But it was a few. So this man, fully committed to the destruction of the church, the blasphemer and persecutor of the church, that's the man that God chooses to take a message of grace to the Gentiles. Chosen from his character, chosen for his commitment, chosen for his knowledge, but ultimately, I think one of the biggest pictures here is that God takes the complete opposite, turns it around, and uses it for his good and his glory. And that message would have went out in the early church. As Paul talks about the gospel of grace, he is a trophy of grace. He's a trophy of grace. The church exterminator, the Gentile hater, remember he's steeped in Judaism. He hates Gentiles. They're dogs. They're diseased. They're dirty. They're lesser human beings. They're not Jews with all the privilege and position. He hates them. He hates the church. He hates the message of Christ. This upstart who's got together this band of rebels that is threatening the character of the goodness of God as Israel knows it. And God changes that man he's an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ and he now goes out and preaches the message of the gospel of grace Jew and Gentile in one that this man was the Messiah 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9 Paul's own words say for I am the least of the apostles that I am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God 
But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the gift of God which was with me. Here's another reason I believe he chose Paul. Now this is not a a universal principle. But I think sometimes it does help in the effectiveness of your ministry, the effectiveness of your walk, and your efforts in the Lord. The deeper the pit that you've been saved from, the more thankful you should be. And the more thankful you are, the more devoted your service to the Lord should be. I think sometimes the danger of growing up in church is you're apathetic to what God has done for you. But when God saved me, I was fully aware of what he'd done for me. I'm fully aware of what he's done for me. I'm fully aware that he saved me from a life of continual destruction. I don't know where I would be, but God. Paul was able to reflect and and how evil and wicked he was and actually how against the purposes he he was. And he looks back and he says, because of the grace that's been bestowed on me, I have been forgiven and I have been given more than I deserve. And because of that, I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God is in me. Paul's talking about the mystery in Ephesians 3. He says it's to be communicated. And he communicated it. He went out and he told the world. He lived up to it. And he appreciated the grace that was bestowed upon him. Brian Chapel in his commentary in Ephesians talks about Christ's servants being enraptured with grace. I love that phrase. He says this. Being enraptured with, the, with grace is the nature of the Christian calling. Such awe of grace certifies our calling as genuine and energizes it in the face of sacrifice. The truly called are so enraptured by the grace of God towards them that the attacks of others, the difficulties of circumstances, their lack of worldly comfort, their lack of recognition in the world do not dissuade them from the joy of proclaiming Christ. I wonder this morning, are you enraptured with grace? But the goodness of God and what he's done for you. Paul says, this mystery is to be communicated. This glorious mystery of the gospel of grace, the church, is to be advocated on earth. And then he says, it's to be acknowledged in heaven. Look at verse 10, Ephesians 3. It says, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers and heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, Paul uh, speaks about the church a lot in Ephesians. He speaks about Christ a lot. And he encourages us to have a high view of Christ. I want to say to you this morning, you cannot have a high view of Christ and not have a high view of the church. And here Paul reveals some more theology about the church. That the church is effectively a cosmic sermon. That what God is doing through the church is being watched from the heavenlies. Peter says angels desire to look into the, the salvation of man. They can't understand it. It's a mystery to them. 
the angels in heaven look upon grace and awe. I think the demonic world looks upon the church in fear and trembling. Because the existence of the church is announcing that their end is coming. That Christ is coming back again. The point being here is that being part of the church is a bigger picture than you can see. And oftentimes we get stuck in the tunnel vision of our own little lives. We miss the big picture. Paul was a big picture man. He was willing to sacrifice, to communicate the message, to advocate it on earth. He understood that it was being acknowledged in heaven, that the heavens were watching on, the principalities and powers were watching on as the work of the church takes place on earth. God revealing his plan and his powers through the existence of the church. I wonder if you sit here this morning and think about that as a big picture, that what we're doing this morning is being viewed and watched in heavenly places, both demonic and angelic. As God is working out his purposes, his eternal purpose, through the church. Sometimes it doesn't feel like we're actually part of a big cosmic plan. It feels like we're just stuck in a corner while the world seems to roll over us. But that's not the case. The church is God's work. It's Christ's body. And when we do what we're meant to do, when we become who we're meant to become, it's a testimony. It's a message. God is sovereign, that he's ruling, that he's reigning, and that his work and purposes are advancing. So Paul's talked about the revelation of the mystery, the unveiling of the mystery. He's talked about the communication of the mystery. And then finally, we want to finish on the appreciation of the mystery. Look at verse number 14 with me this morning where we see the fullness of God's persons. Look at verse 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his Spirit and the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love. Notice the Trinity here. It's the fullness of God's person that is involved in this great mystery of the church. Verses 14 and 15, we see the Father. Verse 16, the Spirit to be strengthened with might by a Spirit. And then verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. That the fullness of God's persons is involved in the mystery of the church, the church is brought about by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each doing their work, doing their part, that we might come together as Jew and Gentile in the world today, that we might be encouraged by the Spirit, taught by the Spirit, as revealed in the Word. We've got to appreciate that God is in the church. It's His church. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, totally committed to the purpose and plan of the church. In verse 18, we move on to the fullness of God's passion. 
Here Paul talks about the great love of God, verse 18, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ with passes knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Here Paul starts to talk about these measurements, the measurements for the immeasurable. He says that you might know the breadth and length and depth and height, the volume, that you might know the unknowable. This is the juxtaposition that we have in this life, that we can know the unknowable. Why? Because God has revealed himself to us. This great mystery. Paul talks about this in Romans 8, and he goes through and talks about, you know, what can separate us from the love of God? For I am persuaded, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the fullness of God's passion. Verse 19, Ephesians 3, Paul says, you may be filled with the fullness of God. Somebody has illustrated this as taking a thimble and going to the ocean and filling the thimble up from the ocean. The ocean isn't diminished, but the thimble's filled. And the water in the thimble is ocean water, same property, same character. So it's like to be filled with the fullness of God. And God's willing. He's also able to look at God's power in verse 20. He says, Now unto him that is able. Able. And we could leave it there. And that would be enough. Yes, God is able. But that's not where Paul leaves it. God is able to do exceeding. He doesn't leave it there more. Abundantly. doesn't leave it there. Above all that we ask or think. So God is able, exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. The fullness of God in us. What does that mean? That God is able to do anything we ask as long as it's in the will of God and we're in his will. These are the promises of this mystery. Verse 21, Unto him be glory in the, what? Church. Church. By Christ Jesus through all ages, world without end. Amen. There should be an appreciation of this mystery. That God is in this and God is wanting to be in us and to use us for his purposes. Throughout biblical history, God has took ordinary people and used them mightily for his work. We need to appreciate 
the glorious mystery of the church. So as we put this all together, we wrap it up this morning, what have we, what have we said? Number one, we've said that this mystery is revealed. It had to be revealed to Paul by Christ. It wasn't known by the Old Testament prophets. It wasn't known properly by the apostles. But Paul is specifically taught. Then he goes and he tells. You know, you get back from Acts 9, you move a little on, you have the Council of Jerusalem. Things are changing, Acts 14, Acts 15. Paul knows because he's been taught three years of learning. And then that mystery then is revealed to Paul. Paul reveals it to others. Then the Spirit is the one that confirms that because the, Old Testament, the New Testament scriptures haven't been written. So the mystery's been revealed. And Paul goes on to say then that the mystery should be communicated, advocated on earth. He's to preach the, the gospel. Same as us, we're to take the message to the world. It's the message of God's grace to the Gentiles. We need to take it out there. It's the church age. That's our job. And as we do that, the heavenlies look on. That's what Paul says. They look on and they see God's plans unfolding. For the demonic realm, that brings fear and trembling because God's work is advancing. The king is coming. For the angelic hosts, they look on with amazement at what God is doing through his church. So we've got the revelation of the mystery. We've got the communication of the mystery. But ultimately, there should be an appreciation of that mystery. Of God's work in the church and in us. See, we were strangers. Aliens from the covenant. No promises from God. And if the gospel, if this glorious mystery hadn't been revealed and, and disseminated through the church to these islands, we wouldn't be sitting here in a church worshiping the one true God, Jehovah. Who knows what we'd be worshiping? That the gospel of grace came to this isles and, and changed us from tree huggers and stone carvers to worshipers of the true God. That's the mystery of the gospel of grace that has come to us, that has changed our nation. It's changed this world. The democratic Gentile nations are built upon Judeo-Christian principles, moralities, laws. The changed lives, the countless that have come to Christ, the other sheep that he talks about, Do we truly appreciate that glorious mystery? That God didn't have to do that. That he desired to do it. To choose us. To elect us. To be the ones to be light unto the world. Without God, we were absolutely beaten. That's what Paul said in Ephesians 2.4. But... God, who is rich in mercy. Now, I want to leave you with two points of application and we're done. Number one, why we have what we have as a church today is a glorious mystery. And I mean mystery in the biblical sense. Something hidden, now revealed, and it's glorious. 
to be part of it is glorious. Second point of application. Why we don't use what we have is a greater mystery. And I mean this in the very modern sense of the word mystery. It's unexplainable. It's unexplainable. If we know what we have and we know who we have, what I cannot explain in my own life, you answer for yourself, is why when I leave this place, I forget about the big picture and get drawn into the minutiae and mud of life. Things that don't really matter in the light of the gospel of grace. Folks, the church is a glorious mystery. I wonder this morning as we close what effect that mystery is having upon you.